the Upper Cumberland is filled with rich history that helped to shape our country to what we live in today. Join Abbott historian Troy Smith as he will tell you tales of characters and events that happened in your backyard. Mountain True starts now. Hello, this is Troy Smith. I am an associate professor of history at Tennessee Tech. And this is Mountain True, where we talk about um, local history, history in the Upper Cumberland, some things that uh, maybe you're familiar with, maybe some things that you are not. And I try to bring things in and show how some stuff sometimes that happened here relates to the bigger picture in other parts of the country. Uh, in addition to being a history professor, I'm uh, also a, uh, a novelist. That's my, that's my night job, and writing history is my day job. Uh, I've written several um, historical fiction novels, uh, particularly Good Rebel Soil, the uh, story of our local Confederate guerrilla champ Ferguson, you can find my, my website and information. Uh, it's www.troydwainsmith.com. That's one big long word, Dwayne, D-U-A-N-E. This time, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about some, um, some past labor issues in the Upper Cumberland, particularly uh, as relates to the United Mine Workers of America. There used to be, uh, as you're probably well aware, a lot of coal mining in this region throughout several of our local counties. And uh, I, strongly, I strongly recommend, if you haven't been there, that you go to the uh, Bonaire Coal Miners Museum in White County. They have a lot of very interesting things there from some of the old uh, White County coal mines. Coal, of course... Uh, had been here for a very long time, uh, but it wasn't extracted here in the Upper Cumberland or in Southern Appalachia in general uh, until the late 19th century. And the big reason for that is that there were no railroads that came up into the mountains in this area. Um, before the Civil War, most of the railroads in the South were sort of geared toward transporting cotton. And if you were not in a cotton-producing area, then there usually weren't any spurs uh, leading nearby. So you could, you could dig the coal, but what were you going to do with it? Before the Civil War, most of the coal in the country was actually being mined in northern Appalachia, up in Pennsylvania uh, and uh, eastern Ohio. This changed uh, toward the end of Reconstruction as more and more northern investors were teaming up with local folks um, who had a, a vision, an entrepreneurial vision of uh, bringing in the railroads and producing coal. And here in the Upper Cumberland, in White County, there was... Uh, an individual named George Gibbs Dibro. You may be familiar with that name if you are uh, a Civil War buff. He was a uh, brigadier general in the Confederate Army, later a, a senator. And so he actually entered into a partnership, uh, convinced uh, Railroad to come up into the mountains. And that led, starting in the 1880s, 
to the opening up of coal mines in in White County. Uh, mines were opened in Fentress and various other surrounding counties. When it comes to uh, labor disputes and strikes and and so forth, uh, from the very beginning there were some of those. For the most part, they were outside the Upper Cumberland region. One of the uh, most famous disputes in in Tennessee was uh, actually a little ways from here. It wasn't in the Upper Cumberland. It was uh, uh, known as the uh, Paint Creek or Cabin Creek Coal Wars that actually uh, took place in the early 1890s when a lot of coal miners were upset that prisoners were being used to to mine coal, uh, which was going to be, well, harmful to the opportunities of the coal miners to have the employment. Um, more locally, there was, uh, there was a strike in 1894 that was part of a general strike that several of the mines around here participated in. Um, in the 19-teens, there was a lot of unrest around the country. Um, there was, uh, in Colorado, uh, what became known as the Ludlow Massacre in 1914, when uh, coal miners who were striking for better working conditions, particularly safety conditions, a lot of people were getting killed because of the unsafe circumstances, which could have been rectified sometimes with the expenditure of a little bit of money. Um, and infamously, uh, the uh, um, strike breakers there wound up <clears throat> using machine guns and, and various other things and uh, quite a few civilians. 21 uh, of the uh, 21 people were killed, and some of them were minors, but some of them were their families. After, after World War I, um, there started to be more unrest. Um, United Mine Workers started trying to um, organize in central and, and southern Appalachia. And there was um, a, a series of incidents that took place in West Virginia that really would have an impact on the rest of the country, including the Upper Cumberland, that came to be known as the Coal Mining Wars. Um, it started in 1920 in the town of Matewan, West Virginia, uh, wherein the uh, miners who were organizing um, were confronted by uh, the security forces that were hired by the mine owners, um, a lot of times Pinkerton agents were used. In this case, uh, it was a similar company also operating out of Chicago called the Baldwin Feltz Company. And it led to a big confrontation on the uh, town streets in Maitwan, West Virginia, in which the mayor was killed. Several other people were, were killed. Uh, the chief of police who had sided with the miners was a guy named Sid Hatfield. Uh, and he was a member of the Hatfield family. This is where the Hatfields and McCoys thing had happened. Uh, and Sid Hatfield was assassinated on the front steps of the courthouse in Matewan, West Virginia. Uh, this was uh, followed shortly uh, by 1921 with a, a big action when 
as many as 10,000 coal miners got together and uh, were were marching toward Logan County, West Virginia, and Mingo County, where this was happening. Uh, and they had a confrontation with the uh, the police and the private security of the coal miners at a place called Blair Mountain. And this was a pretty big deal. Um, this was a fight that went on for several days, uh, involved, like I said, up to 10,000 miners, up to 3,000 police and security. The uh, police uh, were using private planes to drop bombs on the uh, on the miners. There was a lot of shooting going back and forth. Ultimately, as many as 30 people on the side of the uh, coal mine operatives were killed, and between 50 and 100 miners, and almost 1,000 of them wound up in jail. Um, part of this is touched on in the, uh, the movie Mate One from back in the 1980s. I highly recommend that. Uh, it's really good to see the culture of coal mining communities and that part of history. But you know, what am I doing talking about West Virginia and all this stuff, though, when we're here in the Upper Cumberland? Well, the fact is that that, uh, well, that coal mining war in West Virginia really had a huge impact in, in the sense that the United Mine Workers wasn't able to get anywhere in trying to organize for years afterward, and that's where we come around to uh, the Upper Cumberland, specifically to Fentress County. <clears throat> there was uh, a community uh, called Wilder. It was a coal mining town. Uh, the uh, coal uh, company in question was the Fentress Coal and Coke Company. And in July 1932, the uh, miners there in Wilder, uh, joined the United Mine Workers. They, they organized, um, and eventually they went on strike in protest because their wages had just been lowered for uh, the third time in, in a short period. Um, also, there were safety issues, and several people associated with the new union were summarily fired. So <clears throat> this wound up... Uh, being a very tense situation as the coal company brought in agents, I think from Baldwin Feltz um, to serve as their security. And there were uh, several confrontations. There were, there were shootings. Some people were injured uh, sporadically. Uh, fires were set. A railroad bridge was blown up with each side blaming the other for having done it. And ultimately the national guard was called out by the governor of Tennessee. Now, this is where we bring in Miles Horton. That you may have you may have heard of Miles Horton. He's most closely associated with the civil rights movement. Miles Horton was a uh, young man from Tennessee uh, who had uh, gone uh, to college. Actually, he uh, first went to Cumberland University. Uh, later. He uh, interacted with several people in, in New York and learned about this thing, that this phenomenon in Europe that they had uh, of folk schools, which are schools to serve the uh, adult population of rural areas and that are designed essentially um, to preserve the culture 
And so he wanted to start a school like this in Tennessee, and he he did. It was called Highlander Folk School. Initially, it was located in Monteagle, Tennessee. Um, How does Miles Horton get involved? Well, while this strike is going on, um, the striking miners were in dire straits, right, because they weren't getting paid, obviously, in a lot of cases. They were renting their homes from the coal company. So often when there were strikes like this, the miners had and their families had to live in tents uh, because they weren't allowed to, to live in, on the company property. And there was a uh, severe food shortage. Um, the Red Cross sent food uh, that had been donated for the striking miners, but it didn't get to them. So a lot of private individuals who had heard about the situation started arriving to bring food to give to the the striking miners. And Miles Horton was one of the people that was doing that. Uh, And in the course of doing so, he actually uh, got arrested on one occasion uh, by the the National Guard uh, being uh, suspected of being one of the uh, um, quote-unquote agitators. He also became very close friends with the president of the union local, a guy named Barney Graham, who was coordinating the strike. Uh, Horton was a very good writer, um, and he wrote uh, editorials and reports and so forth about what he was seeing there uh, at this location that people around the country were reading. And finally, uh, things came to a head uh, after all this violence, which again was not nearly as bad as what had happened in West Virginia a decade before, but still pretty bad. You know, there's a lot of property damage, people getting hurt. And ultimately what happened is that the uh, president of the uh, UMW uh, local, Barney Graham, was, was killed by uh, security, mining security. Um, he was shot 10 times in the back, and the back of his skull was caved in by a gun butt, uh, and it was ruled self-defense, which sounded pretty suspicious to a lot of people. Uh, with this murder, really, of Barney Graham, national attention was brought even more to... Uh, to Wilder and to Fentress County. Uh, People came from all over the country to go to Barney Graham's funeral. Uh, Unfortunately, this did sort of uh, put the the kibosh on the uh, mining activities. Um, It never really uh, panned out, so to speak, Uh, and things kind of uh, fell apart after that. However, Barney Graham was... uh, remembered as a martyr to the cause of the uh, coal miners. And I forgot to mention this earlier when I was talking about uh, those early 1900s strikes. Um, a lot of times the striking miners identified themselves by, by red neckerchiefs. And uh, they were referred to, sometimes not politely, as rednecks. Um, that's uh, how that term got popularized. Uh, at least in the United States. But uh, back to Barney Graham. <clears throat> his his daughter wrote a song about him, the ballad of Barney Graham. 
And that song was actually later recorded by the famous folk singer Pete Seeger. And uh, just uh, the very tail end of the song uh, it really is, is kind of poignant. Um, I'm going to read it. I'm not going to inflict my singing on you. Uh, Although he left the union he tried so hard to build, his blood was spilled for justice, and justice guides us still. Miles Horton was later quoted uh, as saying that if he had not been a radical before all this, the killing of Barney Graham made him into one. And that's where we start uh, looking at how ripples from these events here in the Upper Cumberland affected the rest of the country. Miles Horton went back to the Highlander Folk School, and that school became a, a training ground for uh, union organizers, specifically nonviolent resistance focused union organizers. Very, uh, very many people went through uh, the program there over the years. And about 20 years after all this, Miles Horton was still around. Uh, but in the mid 50s, 1954 or so, uh, a couple of individuals came to the Highlander Folk School to um, sharpen their organizing skills for a big project that uh, they were about to get underway. And this was this was Rosa Parks and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, as you are no doubt aware, uh, down in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, were part of the uh, the movement calling for um, desegregation of public busing. Rosa Parks, of course, being arrested um, for not moving, uh, which a lot of folks don't know, but that was uh, that was something they'd been working on. Uh, they had trained for just that uh, uh, that movement that that took place. Um, so, uh, Miles Horton and the Highlander Folk School get connected with the civil rights movement and remain so. A lot of civil rights leaders in the 50s and through the 60s came through Highlander, and uh, Miles Horton became very active as an ally in the civil rights movement. In the uh, 1960s, photographs taken of Dr. King at one of the uh, occasions when he was there at, at Highlander um, were blown up into uh, blown up onto billboards. Uh, there was one outside uh, Memphis. There were several along the uh, several along the interstates. It was a a picture of the classroom there at Highlander with Dr. King's uh, face circled in it. That uh, said uh, Martin Luther King at Communist Training School. So you may have seen that photograph. Uh, if you did, you may not have known all the connections. That, uh, that tied Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and the Civil Rights Movement to a tiny coal mining town in, in Fentress County, Tennessee. Uh, but that connection was there, and, well, uh, it, it continues, uh, continues to be there. I, I like to think of, uh, I call Labor Day Barney Graham Day. I think that, uh, I think that, People throughout the Upper Cumberland should should do that. It's it's unfortunate, I think, that this particular story is not better known. It's you know it's enough that the connection to the civil rights movement 
isn't known, but just the story in itself and uh, what happened with, with those miners is something that should be talked about more often. Now, next time, I am going to sort of follow that line from the uh, United Mine Workers uh, to, a to, to a different direction uh, and a different, uh, different type of, of strike uh, in, in Sparta at the Sparta Shirt Factory, but I'll save that one for next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Mountain True. Download your favorites and keep up with new episodes in the Hinson Oakley Podcast Center. 